There is no greater affection than the affection we have for Christ. It is our affection for Christ that determines our affection for anything else. Our affection for Christ determines who we love and why we love them. Our acceptance of Christ also determines our rejection of anything else that is against Christ. This reality makes what we believe about Christ more important. Elevating Christ's place in our lives to an even higher position than he already is. Because of the importance of who Christ is, we pause for a moment now in our text before going on into chapter 4, 1 Timothy, to more deeply examine the confession of who Christ is. Paul makes that confession in 1 Timothy 3.16 and As he talks about who Christ is there two weeks ago, remember that we looked at verses 14, 15. So now we move to verse 16. His confession of who Christ is, is a confession that should resonate with any person who confesses Christ to be true. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to bring to you a message that I've titled, The Confessional Church. God's proclamation for the body of Christ. And please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I will begin reading in verse 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, Paul says. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God the pillar and support of truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Chapter 4. But the spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by the hypocrisy of liars who have been seared in their own conscience, who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God created to be shared in with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. It is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God. And by prayer, verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Be nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but refuse godless myths fit only for old women. On the other hand, train yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily training is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. For it is by this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. You may be seated. At the turn of the 1900s, the nation of Argentina was a thriving nation. Glitz and glamour of the theater, riches of Western Europe. The capital city of Buenos Aires was nicknamed the Paris of South America. 
But a hundred years later, at the turn of the 2000s, it was in the midst of yet another collapse and another default. For 40 years, this has been the perpetual state of Argentina. As an example, in August of 2019, on one Sunday night, our rent was $450 a month. By the morning, by Monday morning, our rent was $200 a month. Just last month in December, that same rent was $80 a month. On Tuesday, and then Wednesday, it went down to $40. That's a great deal for people like us who had dollars. But for the average Argentine then, it means they lost half their net worth. I was eating at an Argentine restaurant this week and met a husband and wife who own the restaurant whose family is still in Argentina. And she was speaking of her mother or mother-in-law, I don't remember which, who gets her monthly pension. And it amounts to nothing but $90 a month. That's what she has to live on. With a 50% unemployment rate, most people are in poverty. Most people are very desperate. And so two weeks ago, when I came across an article from the Associated Press that shared stories of the situation, I was interested. But it started with a headline. And that headline was this. Argentina turns to Gauchito Hill for help amid crisis. Gauchito Hill is what you see in these pictures. He is a deity worshipped by Argentines. He is a folklore hero who is said to have been running from the police one day because he was a thief. Admittedly, supposedly, he stole from the rich and gave to the poor. He was a Robin Hood type figure. And so when the police caught up with him and began to take him in, one of the, he told one of the officers that when you go home, your son will be sick. But if you pray in my name, then your son will be healed. And the story goes that supposedly that happened. And so now we have this legend, this myth. And so now you can go down the highway, in a very obscure highway, and come across a tiny building made out of nothing but tin. It's on the side of the road and, and sits in it the main shrine. It's really an awful and dirty place. Aside from the paganism, it's just physically awful and dirty. There's not much to it. You would be surprised that a million people come there every January to worship. Surrounding it are shopkeepers, each of them selling their same carved figurines of this dead man. In their desperation and in their poverty then, the Argentines are crying out to him to save them, which was the point of the article that I had read. That is idolatry in its full form. But that worship of Gauchito Hill is amazingly similar to what took place in Ephesus at the Temple of Artemis, which we read about two weeks ago when we looked at Acts chapter 19, when the Apostle Paul confronts them for selling their figurines. At the Temple of Artemis, with its shopkeeper selling those figurines of their false idol, it made them complicit in this false worship the fact that we have a different manifestation of that so many years later just shows there's nothing new under the sun. The people then, the people now, bow to a false god, making it nothing more than false worship. <coughs> false worship is a very grievous sin because it takes what is owed from God or to God 
and it gives it to something or someone else who doesn't deserve it, and most importantly, who isn't God. In an interaction with the Samaritan woman, John teaches about a true worship when he talks about how Jesus interacted with that woman. So John chapter 4, Jesus already met the Samaritan woman. And then he tells her in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She begins, I guess. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And then Jesus responds, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. True worship then occurs only in spirit and in truth, according to those verses. But a further implication of this is that true worship must worship something that is true. This makes the worship of Gauchito Hill and the worship at the Temple of Artemis false. Because he is the truth, he is the way, and he is the life, true worship only exists when Christ is the one who is worshipped. By worshipping something, we are confessing it to be worthy of worship. And so when we say we worship Christ then, who exactly are we worshipping? Remember two weeks ago, we talked about what the church was from verses 14 and 15 and the first part of verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And what we talked about is that the church is connectional. The church is conventional. But the very last point was that the church is confessional, confessing the mystery of godliness. Specifically here in 1 Timothy three sixteen, we confess Jesus as a mystery of godliness. We learn six elements then of that are, that are true of who Jesus Christ is. If we are to worship Christ truly, we must then confess these six elements to be true about Christ. And that's what I want to look at this morning. I want you to note first that we confess that Jesus was manifested. First line of the text reads, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh. This is God who is in spirit, but becoming flesh. And that truth provides structure to everything else that we believe. Without it, everything we believe collapses. There is no salvation. There is no sanctification. There's no gospel. We confess that Jesus was God. He was God manifested in the flesh. The author of Hebrews writes, he, is, he, being Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. At one point, Jesus is confronting the disciples. And in that confrontation, Jesus equates himself to God the Father. He addresses Philip and says, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say then, show us the Father? Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus was manifested in the flesh speaks to that incarnation. That moment when Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, descending from heaven to walk with the very people that he would later save. His manifestation of the flesh is the very thing that we celebrated just a month ago. That event is how John opens up his gospel. You heard it this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory is only from Son, only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Those are well-known words, but don't let their familiarity mask the importance that they have. Indeed, they provide the foundation to everything we believe. The words of our text say Jesus or He was manifested. Some of your Bibles will say he became flesh. But it's important to note that became doesn't mean he was created. Rather, he was manifested. It's a better word. He became visible. He has always existed. But now simply he became visible in the flesh so that people could then look upon him. Again, it is by that truth that salvation is possible. The penalty of sin is life. It requires an unblemished, perfect sacrifice. No human is able to fulfill such a demand. It requires God to become flesh. And that's what he did in Christ. In doing so, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That Christ was manifested in the flesh is essential to the confession of the mystery of godliness. Had Christ not come in the flesh, we would remain slaves to sin. Godliness would not be possible. But this sacrifice liberates us from such slavery. So that we can be free from sinfulness and able to live in godliness instead. This profound truth requires meditation. Richard Sibbs would call it the marrow of the gospel. And he says, you know, we cannot too often meditate on these things. It is the life and soul of a Christian. It is the marrow of the gospel. It is the wonder of wonders. We need not wonder at anything after this. It is no wonder that because of this that our bodies shall rise again. That mortal should become afterward immortal in heaven, he says, since the immortal God has taken human nature and died in it. All the articles of our faith and all miracles yield to this grand thing. God manifest in the flesh. Believe this and believe all other. Therefore, he says, let us often have these sweet, cherishing notions of God in our flesh, that it may strengthen and feed and nourish our faith, especially in the time of temptation. And so we confessed first that Jesus was manifest in flesh. 
But not only do we confess that Jesus was manifested, we confess that Jesus was vindicated, that he was freed from all wrongdoing or any charge of wrongdoing. Another word we would use is that Jesus was justified. Again, verse 16. We confess the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. What does it mean that he was vindicated by the Spirit? Was he vindicated by the fact that he willfully gave his own Spirit up at the cross? Or was he vindicated by the Holy Spirit who helped him raise and rise from the dead? It could be either one. It could be both. Luke records twenty in verse chapter 23, verse 46, just before dying, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. He cried out in a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and having said this he breathed his last jesus gave up his own spirit by this we see jesus willingly offered himself as a sacrifice to right all the wrongs of sin jesus suffered it says in hebrews and we all know what isaiah says he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Not everyone saw his glory, yet in offering himself up, he was vindicated from their claims. He was vindicated from their accusations. And so perhaps that is what that meant. Though they cast him out, he was still shown to be worthy of worship. But another aspect of this is that at the offering of himself, Jesus died. But then by the work of the Holy Spirit, he came back to life. Peter describes that for us, chapter 3, verse 18 of his first epistle. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God bring and being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That resurrection by the Spirit signifies God's approval of Jesus himself as being righteous. He is described as a priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, according to the author of Hebrews. At Jesus' baptism, it was the Lord's voice that boomed down and said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus was declared righteous. Hence, God the Father is well pleased with God the Son. And by that righteousness, we all have the possibility to be declared righteous as well. That is the mystery of godliness. That by Christ's righteousness, we can be righteous. Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised, capture, capture that, if the spirit, big S, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Imagine if Christ were not justified. Imagine if he was not vindicated. 
What would that mean for you and I? As a perfect God-man, there is nobody more perfect than Christ. At best, we are imperfect. If Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient, what hope could any of us have then? But it was acceptable. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. It was sufficient enough to cover all sins and all sacrifices forevermore. A person has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up, as it says in Hebrews 7.27. That means that by him, by it all, who come to him, they are justified as well. We are made holy by it. No longer do we suffer in sin, but we grow in godliness. And so we confess both that Jesus was manifested and that Jesus was vindicated. The text continues, though. It says that Christ was seen by angels. And so we confess, third, that Jesus Christ was seen. Jesus was seen. He was seen not just by anyone, though, but by angels is what it says. Jesus was manifested in the flesh, becoming visible on earth. But he was looked upon, looked upon not just by men and women on the earth. He was seen by those in heaven as well. He was manifested so that all could see him. Angels had been part of Jesus' life throughout his earthly presence. Prior to starting his ministry, when he's drawn into the wilderness, Mark says that the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And then after Satan left, the angels ministered to Jesus. Prior to his death, while he was still in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke tells us that an angel appeared in order to strengthen Jesus. While awaiting death, the angel aided Christ and prepared him, it says. And then at Jesus' resurrection, it was an angel who rolled the stone away. And it was an angel who announced that Jesus was alive, though he had been dead three days. But it's not just the angels of heaven who saw Jesus. Paul tells both the Colossians, or tells the Colossians, that fallen angels saw him, that he proclaimed his triumph over them. But then listen to the words that Paul writes to the Philippians. And so just a bit ago, I read to you Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But then those verses go on, those words. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is not just seen by angels, but he's worshipped by them. But it doesn't matter whether they're fallen or not, or whether it's even an angel or not. At some point, everyone and everything will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
They will have to see Jesus as he is. And when they do, they must confess his name over all. It shows just how great Jesus is. His majesty is so magnificent that it is seen in heaven and on earth and below the earth. Writing almost two millennia ago, Origen says, says, Behold the Savior's greatness. It extends to all the world. Go up to the heavens. See how he fills the celestial regions. He appears to angels. Go down in your mind to the nether, to the underworld. See that he went down there too and ponder the Lord's power, how it has filled the world, that is the heavens, the earth, and the nether regions. Jesus Jesus is seen and worshipped by angels, testifying to who he is. Being seen by angels further confirms that he was manifested in the flesh, that he was vindicated by the Spirit, that he alone could satisfy God's wrath, thus making a way for godliness. As the Lord says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. The angels have seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And then having seen him, what do they do? They make him known. They proclaim him. They declare his name to all the nations. At Jesus' birth, it was the angels who first declared not just his birth, but declared his glory to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 5, the angels welcomed Jesus to heaven. And, And hear what they say in verses 11 through 12 when John writes, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. John goes on into the next verse to say that not just the angels declared him, but every creature does. Verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Upon seeing Jesus, it is only natural to respond with a declaration of who he is. To look upon Jesus and to see both his majesty and his holiness. To look upon him and know that in him love and mercy meet. There is only one reaction that we can have. Fear. And in fear, a person will either proclaim Jesus among the nations because of their awe of who he is, or a person will flee from him, fearing his discipline. And so it's for that reason I want you to know forth that Jesus was proclaimed Specifically, the verse says, he was proclaimed among all the nations. In light of who Christ is, one cannot remain silent. In light of what Christ has done, one cannot remain silent. When your life is overturned by what Christ has done, and you have been made a new creation, a person cannot remain silent. His name is to be proclaimed 
We all know the Great Commission text of Matthew 28 and Mark 16, in which Jesus commissions his own disciples, his own followers, to then make disciples of all nations. There will be a point in history when, as we just read in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and the glory of God the Father. At an event that Bethany and I had the privilege of attending just a few months ago with missions leaders, it was shared that for the first time in history, we live in a time in which every country has an indigenous church. It has its own church. And it is thought that by 2030, every indigenous tribe could have an own indigenous church. It's at least very doable. But I'm not sure that we comprehend just how feasible that really is. In a world that lacks and really even shuns godliness, we confess the mystery of godliness by proclaiming the name and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is a natural result of this proclamation, which is part of the confession. But then that proclamation also has its own natural result. And so I want you to note, fifth, that we confess that Jesus was believed. Jesus was believed. The natural reaction of Jesus being seen is that he will then be proclaimed among the nations. And the result of him being proclaimed among the nations is that he will be believed among the nations. That's what it says in 1 Timothy 3.16. It's important to note that the text does not say that everyone will believe. It only says that some will. And when they do, they too will discover that mystery of godliness that the church confesses. Remember what happens in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has said his final words. And he's, he's told the people and, and given them not just instruction, but encouragement. And then very dramatically, he leaves them. He leaves them by ascending into heaven. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and the people begin to talk strangely and it causes some to say that they're drunk. But Peter steps up and says, they are not drunk, they're filled with the Spirit. And then he begins to preach the gospel, proclaiming the name of Jesus. And then Acts 2.41 says that something incredible happened. So those who received his words were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. About 3,000 people were saved, and surely... That was not everyone present. But we still have a testimony that many people responded to the proclamation. Reading the rest of the book of Acts will tell us that thousands more believed in the coming of days and the months. And eventually some will set out themselves to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the mystery of that godliness. Namely, we see that in Paul and Barnabas who go out to proclaim it. 
If the people's belief is a response to something proclaimed, then someone has to be proclaiming. So Paul and Barnabas and others go out declaring the truth, the mystery of the godliness that is revealed. It's actually a bit of what we see even in our letter here. When Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, what's he say in the previous verses? I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. He's writing about behavior and connecting both belief and behavior. Believe upon Christ so that you may behave like Christ. To those in Ephesus, he reminds them of who Christ is, that they may live in godliness, that they may live with the godliness of Christ, the very Christ that they profess to believe. Godliness does not exist without belief, which is why we confess that Jesus was believed. But now we have a final part of our confession. I want you to know finally that Jesus was taken. He was taken in glory, it says in verse 16. That is to say, he ascended to heaven. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things, Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 10. Having completed his work here on earth, there's no need for Jesus to remain. His time on earth was only temporary, temporary and when he completed all that he set forth to do at the time he then returned returned to where he came from as we read earlier in hebrews 1 3 he returned and sat at the right hand of god acts 1 describes the events for us again jesus remember had been speaking to those who were assembled after his resurrection He's just told them that they will be his witnesses in all of Judea and all of Samaria and the rest of the world. And then Acts says, And when Jesus said these things, as they were looking on him, he was lifted up, and a cloud cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Heaven is a place where only righteousness dwells. There can be no impurity there. For if any unrighteousness is there, the creature will either be cast out by God, or upon looking at God's holiness, that creature will die. So Christ's ascension not just into heaven, but specifically at the right hand of God, it shows us that he was pleasing in God's sight. God didn't cast him out. Jesus didn't die for a second time. That means that all that Christ did on earth, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, those are all pleasing to the Lord. Were not so, he couldn't be sitting next to the God, the Father. And so with the Lord's approval of Christ's actions, then we can trust that indeed his work was sufficient to cover our sins, to make us holy, to make us godly in the sight of the Lord. And so the confession that Christ was taken is crucial 
because it gives us confidence that by Christ's work, we are justified by the Spirit as well. But also remember Romans 8.34 that says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so by his ascension, he's now making intercession. And then there's Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the othermost. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the mystery of godliness, that he was taken up in glory. And because he was taken up in glory, he makes justification for us. Salvation. But he also makes intercession for us. That's sanctification. That we are declared godly once and for all, but also continue to live in godliness. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and to all those in Ephesus at this point, this letter. And he says, we confess the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the confession by which all churches stand or fall. It is the truth confessed not just by the churches of ancient Ephesus, but the one by which all churches, even in modernity, stand as well. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Without a clear confession of Christ and who Christ is, the church cannot be who it's supposed to be. That is to say that it cannot be a pillar and buttress of truth that it is called in verse 15. In order to be a care of souls, the church must be a pillar and buttress of truth. The role of the church and the role of individuals in the church is to care for people. But we're not doctors who care for people physically. We're God's children who care for people's hearts. We care for their souls. We see this clearly in Colossians chapter 3 or Romans chapter 15. And we fulfill this calling by leading people towards the truth of God. A church and a people who have not been placed on that truth cannot adequately or accurately fulfill this call. The care of people depends upon the church being a pillar and a buttress of truth. And the church's function as a pillar and buttress of truth depends upon its confession of Christ. In a world that tries to suppress the truth, we not only see that in the world, Romans chapter 1 tells us that will happen. And so in a world that tries to suppress the truth, the church, it cannot be a pillar and buttress of truth without drawing attention to Christ. The church must say that he was manifested, that he was vindicated, that he was seen, that he was proclaimed, that he was believed, and that he was taken. Historically, it was to the church that people sought care. When a crisis happened, the people went to church. A more recent example of this, most of us here are old enough to remember, though it happened 20 years ago, was September 11th, 2001. With that depravity of man on full display at that event for the whole world to see, people had no answers. They faced an intense internal crisis, 
trying to reconcile what they believed about the world with everything that had just taken place before their eyes. It was a time that caused, at least temporarily, an increase in church attendance as people sought answers. In the greatest tragedies, the church has always had the answer. And even now, though people may seek out their care less from churches today, we still have the answer. The answer and the care of souls is found by directing people to Christ, which means we need to know who Christ is and how Christ helps. With the confession of 1 Timothy 3.16, we make known who we are and what we have to offer to them in their time of need, which is Christ. And so adopting these words, he is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Adopting those words defines our accountability, our activity, and our authority. Again, adopting those words defines our accountability, our activity, and our authority. When we confess Christ, we define our accountability. We are telling people exactly who we are, and they're telling us who they are. And if they're not confessing Christ, then they're telling us who they're not. But when we confess this, and this is what we believe, if they don't see that, then they can bring that forward to our attention. In the same way, we can bring it to their attention when they confess this to be true but their behavior signifies something opposite. That's how souls are cared for, directing people to Christ. When we confess Christ, we define our activity. Who Christ is determines what we say, what we think, and what we do. And so when we confess who Christ is, we must bring everything into alignment with that confession. And finally, we confess Christ, and when we do so, we define our authority. Our appeals to rightness, our appeals to integrity, our appeals to holiness are not determined by what men think, but by what God thinks. And so by confessing Christ in this way, people should know exactly who we are. And they should know exactly what we're going to tell them. They should know exactly what they're going to get from us. They should know what we're going to preach. Specifically, they should know that we're going to preach Christ to them. And they should know that we're going to practice Christ-likeness toward them. And if that is not in alignment with Christ-likeness, we have a problem. Because it means that not only are we off in our practice, but then we're off in our ability to care for people. And our care of souls is dependent upon being a pillar and buttress of truth, which is dependent upon being a confessional truth that proclaims Christ. Or to put it another way, our care of God's people is dependent upon our confession of God's Son. Let's pray. Father God, your truth reveals, and we know it to be true, that you sent your Son And in doing so, he was you manifested. We know that he was vindicated by the Spirit, that he was seen and believed and proclaimed, Lord. Father, on this truth, we stake our lives, Lord, and we know it to be so. 
in a reasonable, rational, rational faith that we've seen this be true in our lives and other lives and through your word, Lord. And so, Father, allow that to be our true confession. Allow this confession to be the one that permeates our hearts and flows out of our mouths, proclaimed to others, Lord. Father, may we confess your Son to be the one true living God, Lord. And by it, Lord, Father, we give you great praise that we are, we are saved and we are sanctified, Lord. And so, Father, we just thank you so much for that. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.